Look out, he's got a knife. Well, so does everybody else. Self-defense, self-awareness, self-development. This is the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore. Hello and welcome to the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore. The Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore is a production of philelmore.com and themartialist.net. Let's see how many times I can say my name. (laughs) I am your host, Phil Elmore. There, I said it again. Uh, And today I thought we would talk about a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, and that is the topic of knives as self-defense tools. Uh, In the UK especially, there is a term called knife crime. And while we haven't moved as far along the spectrum as far as regulating knives in the United States as they have in the UK, I fear that we are probably just a little farther along down the, farther uphill on the slippery slope because first they come after firearms, then they ban the firearms, then they come after knives, then they ban all the knives, and then after that, the next logical step actually is regulating and banning uh, martial arts because the people who want to make these things illegal are tyrannical at heart. These are the people with the souls of would-be tyrants. They don't see themselves that way. You either believe that another person's freedom of action is a benefit that accrues to all, or you see it as a threat that must be curtailed. So there are people who wake up in the world every day going, some people out there are doing and carrying things that I don't approve of, and they must be stopped. Those are the people that want to ban guns. Those are the people that want to ban knives. They will tell you that the reason they want to ban guns and knives is because they want you to be safe. These things are dangerous, they will tell you and therefore they must be banned so that you will be safer. What they always ignore is that a human being who is disarmed is not safer, and the overwhelming majority of the people who must then suffer the ill effects of having the tools of self-defense banned are not the criminals, because the criminals are in the minority, it is the people who only wanted the lawful means to defend themselves. So those of us who are law-abiding will then abide by the laws and go about unarmed because we have no choice, and the criminals will continue carrying weapons because they are criminals, and by definition, they don't care what your stupid laws say. When it comes to firearms, gun control laws can have a limited effectiveness, and by that I mean that if you cut off the means of buying legal firearms, you necessarily prevent firearms from entering into the population. Some small percentage of them will then not be stolen or uh, misappropriated, purchased legally in one area and transported illegally to some other area. People who are for gun control believe that that's the end of the argument. Well, if we do this, then we help prevent guns from entering the population. The problem is that you don't stop it, because while guns are a relatively complex technology, the technology does not come from space aliens. Anyone with a machine shop can knock together a Mac 10 submachine gun, and it will be rough but functional if they have even a medium amount of skill. So it is impossible to ban firearms. It is slightly more effective to go after the ammunition, because ammunition is actually harder. It's harder to produce ammunition than it is to produce Uh, the firearms that fire it. So you could argue that gun control in countries that have no tradition of firearms rights and do not have a Second Amendment to protect those firearms rights. You could argue that 
banning firearms does have a certain amount of effectiveness and it does keep firearms from the population to some degree, if not to a 100% degree. And we see that in the UK. They do not have as many firearms available uh, they, because they just don't, they, and they never have. This is cultural. There never were the number of firearms in the UK that there are in the United States. But uh, there still are gun crimes. There's still smuggled firearms. People, criminals tend to get the, what they want wherever they have to source it from. I remember there was an article about fully automatic AK-47s being smuggled into San Francisco, I think it was, on board a ship. These weren't entering the country illegally, and I'm certain they weren't headed to legal hands when they got here. Of course, the average person, the mere, a mere mortal in the United States, cannot own a fully automatic weapon. To have the permit that allows you to own a fully automatic weapon, you not only have to live in a gun-friendly state, but you have to basically let the ATF periodically crawl up into your underoos and examine everything you are doing. It's not a pleasant experience. So let's remove guns from the equation for now because you know the, the gun laws are what they are. Why I want to talk about knife crime is because the second most powerful weapon for self-defense is the knife. Firearms are the first and if you can legally carry a firearm, if you can get a permit or you're in a, you're in a constitutional carry state and you can legally own and carry a firearm, that is the best tool for self-defense. But you should also be carrying a legal knife as a backup Knives are the second best self-defense tool, and the gap between the first and the second is large, but that still means that knives are incredibly powerful. A knife is a force multiplier. It allows you to impart a great deal of physical force with very little physical effort. I would argue that except for pulling a trigger, the only other self-defense action that requires less effort is wielding a sharp knife. Even a toddler Holding a sharp knife could injure you very badly without that toddler even meaning to harm you. <laughs> Thus, the specter of the murder toddler is born. But uh, you can, you know, with a knife, you can do way more damage than you can without it. And that's true of anyone, really any physical fitness. Even a very unfit person, when armed with a knife, has a great deal of power at their disposal for self-defense. This is what makes knives so dangerous. Knives operate because of physics. It is simple physics that makes the knife so powerful. If I put my finger on your chest and I push as hard as I can, you will find that experience unpleasant. You will not be injured. You might get a small bruise, depending on how hard I'm working that. But if I place a screwdriver against your chest and I push as hard as I possibly can, I may injure you very badly. I may even kill you. That's because of physics. When you put the same amount of force into a smaller area, you increase the ability of that force to achieve penetration through whatever medium you are attempting to apply that force to. So uh, while it's not possible for me to put my hand through drywall without breaking the bones in my hand, it is possible for me to put a dagger through drywall with relatively little force. It doesn't take that much to pierce a knife into a drywall uh, wall. Uh, sheetrock is tough, but it's not that tough. So given this, given how powerful a knife can be, given that the way to neutralize the human body is to damage the organs that are inside the envelope that is your skin, and given that a knife does just that with relatively little physical force, uh, and of course, you know, if it lets your blood out and you run out, that's another way, although it takes longer. Given all that, how futile is it to talk about knife crime and to vilify anyone who carries a knife as criminal scum when there are plenty of people out there who want to carry a knife, not just for self-defense, 
but for utility. It is possible to improvise a stabbing weapon. People have been doing it in prisons for as long as there have been prisons. Uh, the most controlled environment available, the most controlled anywhere of anything, they are still finding ways to stab each other to death. Uh, it, you know, a screwdriver will kill you dead. Uh, a toothbrush that has been melted to form a spike on the end will kill you dead. They, they, they don't have to be pretty or even sophisticated for physics to do its job. So if you can manufacture a stabbing implement from literally anything that is rigid enough to stay that way when it is plunged into another human being, passing laws against knives is utterly futile. Yes, you might cut down on people getting slashed with knives that are very sharp, but I would much rather be slashed with a knife than I would be stabbed with a knife because uh, the opinions of certain experts aside, what kills you is being punctured, not being sliced. Now, yes, you can bleed out if you are cut. Uh, there are certain very vulnerable areas on the body where you do not want to be cut. Uh, if you, you're cut in an artery or even a vein, you could run out of blood. You get an artery cut, you're going to run out of blood really fast. But the fact is, if you are stabbed with any improvised stabbing implement, that's way deadlier than if you are cut with any of thousands of commercially available folding knives or fixed blade knives. So when we vilify knives as the, the implements of quote-unquote knife crime, which they're always saying with, with uh, you know, deeply echoing sonorous voices over in the UK, you know, they're, they're putting knives in surrender bins in the UK um, because knives are very, very, very bad. They're even talking about making it illegal for people to buy knives that have pointed tips. Uh, all this does is treat every member of your society as if they are already residents of a prison. The UK is essentially a prison where self-defense is illegal. Canada is essentially a prison where self-defense is illegal. Their knife laws in Canada are actually pretty decent, uh, and they're much more consistent uh, across the country of Canada than state knife laws are in the United States because knife laws can vary so widely from state to state in the United States. It is possible, if you are a Canadian, to actually know what the laws are with relative confidence. If you're, you know, if you're an American, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> state to state, it can be really hard to know. Uh, and the knives, the knife laws themselves can be so vague that even when you know the exact text of the law in your state, you're still not really sure what's going to get you in trouble and what's not. Uh, and then there are cities where they have their own regulations. New York City in the United States has notoriously been prosecuting people for possessing quote-unquote gravity knives, which are illegal per New York State statute, by misinterpreting the definition of gravity knife. A gravity knife is a knife where you push a button and the blade falls into place, and then you let go of the button and that locks the blade. There are certain paratrooper knives that stem from World War II that answer to the description of gravity knife. And for whatever reason, here in New York State, we made those illegal a while back, just like switchblades are supposed to be illegal. I think there's an exception if you're a one-armed hunter or fisherman. This was because before there were one-hand opening knives, the only knife you could open with one hand was like a switchblade or a gravity knife. But anyway, uh, gravity knives are illegal in New York State. So the, the New York State Attorney General has for many, many years misinterpreted the statute deliberately. They used it to make butterfly knives sort of illegal or just cause them to reside in a legal gray area for the longest time. I think there might be case law that finally did away with that. And in New York City, people with perfectly ordinary folding knives have repeatedly been arrested and prosecuted for having gravity knives because if the cop could flick your knife open with centripetal force, 
then that meant you had a gravity knife, which of course you don't. That's completely false. But it never stops the folks in New York City from targeting law-abiding citizens and making life worse for literally everyone. You know, Bernard Getz, who famously shot some people on the New York subway because he was tired of being victimized by criminal scumbags, he went way overboard. He actually stood over the guy and reportedly said, you don't look so bad, here's another. I can tell you, as someone who has studied the law of self-defense, I've actually participated in the creation of programs that educate you about the use of force and what is considered parity of force and you know what's legally permissible when it comes to defending yourself. To, to fire that shot, to stand over someone who's neutralized and say, you don't look so bad, here's another, that normally sends you to prison. But New Yorkers were so fed up, so sick and tired of being brutalized, of being uh, just victimized left and right by criminals in New York City, they overlooked how Bernard Getz basically violated self-defense law and took revenge on the people who tried to mug him. And the only crime he went up for was illegally possessing a firearm. Now, he possessed that firearm illegally because there was no way for him to get a carry permit in New York City. It simply was not allowed. And that meant that you either had to be a law-abiding, disarmed, helpless citizen in the face of all this crime, or you had to break the law and become a criminal. I get the distinct sense that Bernard Getz has absolutely no regrets about what he did. Um, and honestly, interviews with him are more than a little creepy. So, I don't know, there may be more going on there than just law-abiding guy finally loses it and defends himself. Um, you know, he breaks the law to do it. But regardless, when you create conditions where the law-abiding are helpless, you're not making them safer. People who ban weapons because they want to make us safer are not helping us. But then... When you ban a very valid utility tool, where you make it so that people are getting arrested for having, like I saw in the UK, a guy got arrested because he had a knife in his car that he legitimately used for work. And it was found in a quote unquote routine search of vehicles in the area. Now, already there are some serious civil rights problems when the police are conducting routine searches of people's vehicles without any kind of a warrant. But, uh, you know, this guy, he just had the knife for work and he's being arrested for that. Uh, when when we're pu punishing people because they broke the letter of the law, but we're not looking to the spirit of the law, then we've lost the plot. Uh, zero tolerance uh, violence rules in schools are like this. We take a zero tolerance approach to fighting in schools to the point where even someone who defends themselves while being attacked is punished just as much as the person who attacked them. There is no justice in that. Um, no child of mine would ever be told that they couldn't fight back and defend themselves. And my own father told me, look, if somebody hits you and you hit them back, I'm not going to punish you for doing that when you come home. You're not going to be in trouble for defending yourself. Honestly, I think the old man wanted to know that I could stand up for myself. <laughs> He, uh, he he never really gave me much advice in the way of fighting. That was on me to, to learn martial arts and, and stuff. He, he did, I think, once tell me, if you got to punch somebody, punch them in the nose. <laughs> it wasn't much as, as advice goes. But I did know that if I had to defend myself, I wasn't going to be in trouble at home when I came home. And weirdly, uh, my lack of understanding of that uh, led me to be bullied by people who were smaller and weaker than me. I can remember when I was uh, like a sophomore in high school, there was a much smaller freshman who, for whatever reason, kept hassling me. 
um, you know, just saying crappy things and just just generally being a, a nuisance. And I remember standing there thinking about that. I'm like, this is absurd. Why am I, a much larger, older person, being harassed by a smaller, younger person? That's not how these things are supposed to work. And I remember thinking it through because I was not a I was not a bully in any way, shape, or form. I'm like, what would a bully do? What like bullies are the aggressors, and this person is bullying me. What would I do if I were the bully? I remember thinking, well. I guess I could bounce that kid off a bank of lockers. That probably wouldn't hurt him too much. I could probably get away with it if nobody saw. So <laughs> the next time he walked by me in the hall and said something crappy, I grabbed him and bounced him off a bank of lockers. <laughs> and and I, what's funny is there was no malice in it. It was a calculated act to get him to leave me alone, to show him, show him that there was a, a penalty for harassing me. <laughs> And he never bothered me again. And I never got in trouble for that, although technically I did. You know, when someone is using words, for you to respond with physical violence is generally seen as a violation of the rules. It certainly is in polite society and in a school environment. So uh, for whatever reason, I never got punished for that, never got in trouble for that. There was a, a similar incident where I remember making much the same calculation, a calculation that I would then make later in life in the working world. I'll, I'll get to that. Um, there was a kid, there was something wrong with this kid. He lived in the neighborhood. I don't think he was all there mentally. And I don't think he understood how to interact with other human beings. And for whatever reason, you know, it was my day or my turn in the barrel. For a couple of weeks, he would punch me in the shoulder and run. And, you know, most of the time I was like, I'm not running. I have a policy on running. I don't do it. I was born on Mosey. But there was one day where I had just had enough. He did it one time too many. And I got mad and I chased him down. And uh, I caught him pretty much in front of my own house on the opposite side of the street. And somehow managed to get my arm wrapped around his neck and I twisted him and put him on the ground uh, in a headlock. And I remember thinking, I have no idea what to do now. <laughs> because you know the idea of beating him into the dirt was just not in my head. I wasn't that kind of kid. And uh, my mother came out of the house having witnessed this, and I kid you not, she said, Philip, you put him down this instant. <laughs> so, so I did. I let him go, and he ran away, and he stopped bothering me after that because there were penalties for, for being bothered. And, and, you know, it's weird how many times that same tactic worked. And I wish somebody had taught me how to fight, or maybe it's better that they didn't. Because when I was in uh, the 7th and 8th grade band, that's right, I was a band geek, there was a kid named Kevin. And Kevin was a year older than me, so he was in the 8th grade when I was in the 7th grade. And Kevin was a jerk, and, and Kevin was constantly hassling me, harassing me. And when I was in the when I was in ninth grade, and he was a 10th grader, we were both in the band again together. And I used to eat my lunch in the band room because that was permitted if you were in the band, and it was a much more peaceful place to eat lunch. So I would read a book and eat lunch uh, sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. So I was in the band room one day in this safe, quiet place of peace and, and rest. And Kevin walked in for some band-related reason, and he said something nasty. I don't even remember what he said. And something in me, just like the day that kid punched me in the shoulder one too many times, something in me just went, all right, that's enough. And I got up, I walked up behind him, I wrapped an arm around his neck, and I started twisting. And he ended up on the ground, and I'm essentially choking him to death. And while he's turning red because he can't breathe, it occurs to me, again, I have no idea what to do. I'm like, I, 
what do I do? I can't keep him. He doesn't belong to me. So I did the only thing I could think of. I let him go. And Kevin never bothered me again. And when he was a senior and I was a junior, he even asked me to sign his yearbook. And I looked at him and I probably looked at him like, um, what? And he said, oh, come on. I haven't given you any trouble since you tried to murder me that time, which was his acknowledgement of what had happened. So there really is, there's a lot to be said for standing up for yourself. And when people are helpless and cannot stand up for themselves, that doesn't help them. Now, I'm not saying go out and get a knife and preemptively stab your enemies to stand up for yourself. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the attitude that we take towards self-defense as a society is not right. We tend to punish people for defending themselves when they are not the aggressors. And we tend to punish society in general by holding them to the same standards that we hold criminals. When, when we ban the tools of self-defense because a small minority of people misuse them, then we're essentially treating everyone as a criminal who just hasn't had a chance to commit a crime yet. And the result of that is a disarmed populace that is helpless in the face of aggression. And you see this, uh, if anyone can create a knife, anyone can create a stabbing implement from just about anything, then passing laws that bans knives does nothing but make it harder for law-abiding citizens to do utility tasks, but also punishes them for getting caught with necessary tools on occasion. And it doesn't stop horrible crimes from taking place. In China, there was a mass stabbing spree, and there have been other stabbing sprees. Um, I believe a soldier was killed by a guy with either a machete or a large knife. A soldier was killed in the UK, and it was a famous incident. You know, the, It is very easy to hurt a lot of people and even kill them with nothing but a blade, with nothing but a stabbing implement. There's that old Klingon proverb that, some thousands of numbers of throats can be cut in one night by a running man. That's not too far off in terms of, you know, if you have speed and aggression on your side, if you are armed with any kind of a stabbing implement, even something like a hypodermic needle, you can hurt a lot of people before they finally stop you. So I don't think it's right to disarm people and treat them all like criminals. And yet, in the UK, we have the specter of knife crime, where if you have any knife of any kind, you are presumed to be a criminal. And we're seeing those attitudes repeated here in the United States. Um, there is a, an organization, the American Knife and Tool Institute, that fights for knife rights in the United States. They're not well known and they're not tremendously well funded, but they do exist. I believe that just as you have the right to keep and bear arms, you have the right to keep and bear knives as arms, but also as utility tools. I think it's foolish <clears throat> for us to ban the single most useful tool that has ever been invented. Think about it. There is no tool that is not produced with the help of some other cutting implement. All industry, from the smallest to the largest, is based on the ability to cut material, to separate one material from another. Cutting edges are integral to all of our technology. We must view knives as what they are, necessary tools. And yes, knives are also powerful weapons. Yes, knives can be, uh, they can be your front line of defense. If you don't have a gun, if you can't carry a gun, then yes, you could carry a knife. I'm, I'm passionate about this topic because I carry a knife all the time, and I believe that if you are trained to use it, so should you. That doesn't mean it's without its, its pitfalls. I mean, if you have to stab someone in self-defense, you will go on trial for it. There was a famous case of a young man who was in college, and a frat brother was, was beating him senseless, and so this kid deployed a karambit that he was carrying and used it 
for self-defense. He didn't kill his attacker. As a matter of fact, he did absolutely everything right. He tried to defuse the situation. He tried to de-escalate. He used no more force than was absolutely necessary. But yes, eventually he had to cut this kid to get him off him. And so he went on trial for his very life because his life would have been over if they'd convicted him. And by some miracle, he, he got off and was acquitted. But boy, you know, he was put through the ringer before he got there. It's the exact same thing that happened to Kyle Rittenhouse when Kyle Rittenhouse used a rifle to defend himself. My point is that if you engage in lawful, potentially lethal self-defense, it's not like the cops are going to look at you and go, good job, and send you home. You will end up on trial to defend your actions. That's just how our legal system works. Some states are worse than others. I know some of you live in states where you're like, well, that's crazy. If I defended myself, they wouldn't bring me up on charges. Well, you don't know that. And all circumstances for all self-defense incidents are different. So you could end up in a sketchy set of circumstances that look bad even if you tried to do everything right. Think of it this way. We don't always think ahead. We don't always think several steps ahead. Let's say you get into a verbal altercation with somebody. Maybe that person's being a jerk and you mouth off to them and you're carrying a knife so that when that person gets mad enough to finally start, you know, attacking you and suddenly you're worried that you might be in genuine, legitimate, imminent danger of serious physical injury or death and you deploy your blade to defend yourself, there are going to be spectators who watch that whole thing unfold who will characterize you as the aggressor or at the very least as someone who contributed to the set of circumstances that led to that deploying of your weapon and eventually led to someone being very hurt or even killed. You don't always get to predict what that chain of circumstances is going to be. And when we live in a world where just having a knife already makes you the villain in the minds of most people because popular culture told them so, then you're operating at a disadvantage when you are armed with a blade. Always understand that and always consider it before you put that knife in your pocket. I, I say this as someone who carries a knife every day, a legal knife that I'm allowed to carry that is not against the law where I am. And I have extensive training to use it because I sought that training out. Training is available. You may not think it is, but there are more classes out there, more seminars on the use of the knife for self-defense than you could possibly know. And I was amazed when I started looking for that training, just how much was available that I had no inkling existed. So consider all of these and weigh it appropriately. When people start talking about knife crime, yes, they are vilifying legitimate lawful self-defense, but there are also considerations that you must take into account so that you don't end up going to prison after the fact. All right, I think that's probably going to do it for this episode of the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore. Until next time, pretend I said something cool here. This has been the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore. Visit us online at linktree slash Elmore.